Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Nina Itamudia, AICP. Nina is a city planning associate with the City of Los Angeles Planning Department. She also is an active APA member and serves as the Young Planners Group Coordinator for the state of California. Nina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's an honor to be here. So I'm curious, um, you're a native of Detroit. I am. Proud and loud and proud. Loud the first and thing proud. I say to everybody, I'm from Detroit. Proceed. <laughs> Well, I, I love asking all of my guests uh, how where they grew up kind of shaped their interest in cities and oh, people yes. and places. So what was that like growing up in Detroit and how did it maybe lead you to a career in planning? Oh, well, that is a long, interesting story, but I'll try to keep it short. Um, so born and raised in Detroit my whole life. Have I have an older sister and a younger brother. Uh, I am the daughter of an immigrant. My father is from Nigeria, hence the last name, which you said so eloquently. Oh, thank you. So I appreciate that. Um, and my mother's family is from Mississippi. And so my grandparents migrated from Mississippi to Detroit um, before my mother was born and settled there, like a lot of other black folks did back in the day. Um, and so I was born and raised there, um, and I grew up on the east side east side all day every day <laughs> um i claim seven mile into quinder because that's where i was predominantly raised um and so you know detroit is such an interesting place we're very resilient people and so in order to be resilient you have to be re resilient against something and i think a lot of people know from what you've heard whether you've seen the movie eight mile or you know the history of detroit and, and white flight like a lot of midwestern cities um we didn't have a lot of city resources and i grew up knowing that but not real not knowing what to call it right i just knew that i didn't have what everybody else had so i went to school in the suburbs um in harper woods i'm a graduate of harper woods high school and actually, my mom went to prison when I was pretty young. I was 10 years old. Um, and I saw her get assaulted by two white officers. And that was pretty traumatic for me. Um, but it was life-changing in the sense that I knew, even though my mom had a college education, even though my mom owned her house in Detroit, even though she seemingly did everything you needed to do, the environment of being in the city, still, um, we weren't resistant to the things uh, racial discrimination, housing discrimination. We weren't resistant to that just because we thought we did it well um, or that my grandparents bought a house on a predominantly white street back in the day. You know, like you still uh, are succumbed to your environment. And so at a pretty young age, like I said, at 10 years old, I realized that my environment had a lot to do with the opportunities that I would or would not have. Um, so once my mom went to prison, she was in prison for four years. Um, we actually were in, instead of going to foster care, we went to kinship care because my aunt was able to take care of us and take us on. And so that's why I was probably raised on Seven Mile and Dequinder. Um, but we went to school in the suburbs because my mom was very adamant about us getting a good education at that time. And honestly, still today, Detroit public schools aren't in the best place. And so we literally walked from seven mile to eight mile, uh, rain, sleet, or snow, and then got on the bus to go to the suburbs every day, me, my sister, and my little brother. Um, at the time, 
you know, we were using my aunt's address um, to to get the education because there was, of course, restrictions. And I don't know if the if the administration just we they just liked us, so they turned their head or what. Um, but luckily, you know, we were pretty good students. We were one of the first black families to be in that school district. I remember when I was in fourth grade, I was the only black student in the entire grade, I believe. I could be, there might have been one or two other, but from my memory, I know for sure in my class, I was the only black person. And so, you know, taking the bus down eight mile from where I was from to the suburbs, you could literally see every day the micro changes that you that you saw just riding public transit every day. Um, and so that kind of gave me an idea of like, huh, you know, my community is so, so much different. And then when my friends from school, what they would be doing after school and how they would be playing after school was different because I had to commute back to the city. And of course, they didn't know that. And so like just seeing that every day um, kind of made me wonder, like, why is it that I can't have those things? Why is it that I don't have the same parks? Why is it that I don't have the same after school programs in my neighborhood? that my classmates had in their neighborhood. Um, so again, that kind of just shaped how I saw the world. Um, and so uh, from there, once my mom got out of prison, we moved back in with her and then uh, still living in Detroit, of course, finishing up high school. Then I went to University of Michigan for undergrad. Um, now I was kind of a dork. So <laughs> I was really into like African-American studies <laughs> and black literature, because of course, when you're in a predominantly white environment, you want to know more about your history, which I'm so thankful for. Um, because again, being in that predominantly white environment made me crave wanting to know more, especially since I had this Nigerian heritage that I knew about, but wanted to learn more about. Um, so I went to like African-American studies camp when I was 16. <laughs> Again, I was a dork, but I got to read a lot of black thought leaders and what their perception of, of the built environment was and how that affected their upbringing, whether you were Marcus Garvey or you were W.E. Du Bois or, you know, any of those um, kind of black authors in the James Baldwin. I was reading all of that at 16 and kind of absorbing all of that and thinking about how the world was. And I was always the person in my school like, Black history is not just Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Like, we need to do more. <laughs> if you ask any of my teachers, um, I was always like, let's make a slideshow and, and have all these different, you know, kind of prominent black leaders that aren't these main two that y'all love throwing in our face. Um, and let's learn more about Africa than, like, let's learn the countries of Africa and not just talk about Africa <laughs> as, like, this one big continent. Um, and so by the time I got to the University of Michigan, I had declared African-American studies on my first day, freshman year. I was into it. I was, I loved it a lot. And then I added on women's studies. Um, and I thought I was going to be, like, this militant black professor. <laughs> when I grew up, I had no idea that I was going to end up in planning. And it was actually because of my African-American studies advisor. She said during my junior year, I was in her office for an advising appointment, or I was just bothering her, whichever one. She'll tell you which one I was doing. Um, but she was like, oh, the University of Michigan's planning department is recruiting for diverse applicants. And I'm black and I'm a woman. Um, so uh, I fit the script. And I literally looked at her with the most, like with a face of confusion. I was like, I have no idea what that is. And so she was like, oh, like, let's Google it. And so we Googled it in her office and um, the description of it, of like shaping the built environment, writing laws, writing ordinances, for some reason it resonated with me because for so long I had worked in undergrad, like do, doing um, prisoner advocacy, because of course I was, I was a 
someone whose parent had been to prison and I, and I worked to, on behalf of, um, prisoners in Michigan to get them their civil rights, um, basic rights of like medical writing letters to the warden. I did that. I organized first generation college students, even though I wasn't a first generation college student, I helped to organize different programs on campus, making sure that students, um, had resources. I did all types of organizing and things on campus, but I wasn't sure where to focus it. I wasn't sure where that change was actually going to happen. How do you make that happen? How do I empower my community to know that there's change? Because really, when you grow up, you're distrustful of the government. Firsthand, I know exactly why you're distrustful of the government and you're tired of lip service. So I wanted to see, I wanted to do something action oriented. Um, And so when we read the description, I was like, wow, this is like, this is it. This is the way I can actually make a change in my community and communities like mine for the next black girl from Detroit. So I ended up um, applying to grad school right after that. It didn't take much. And I just started sending applications everywhere and ended up getting accepted into University of Southern California, which I knew nothing about at the time. And I applied because they had a fee waiver. Um, <laughs> if I'm being honest, I mean, that's that's the story I always tell because it's true. They had a fee waiver. I didn't know anything. I'm a girl from Detroit, the Midwest. My mind was very Midwestern focused. Um, and, you know, I had some friends convince me to, yeah, you just put an application out in one of those California schools, see what happens. End up getting accepted and going to USC. So, sorry, I said I was going to keep that short, but it wasn't. <laughs> well, very powerful, so well worth it. Um, you mentioned James Baldwin, and I'm not sure every planner or even every person sort of connects the dots that, that maybe you and I do, but I recently reread um, an article he wrote when he visited Chicago, which is mm. where we are today. Mm. And the thing that struck me as so resonant and sad was he said, you know by the address who's going to live there. Mm. Chicago is a highly segregated city. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one of the things that obviously we need to keep working on. But it stuck with me because he wrote it, I'm sure, in the early 60s, and, uh, you know, it's still true today. Yes. And I heard a presentation recently by Michael Strautmanis, who's um, chief engagement officer for the Obama Foundation. Mm. And of course, here in Chicago, there's a a lot going on with the Obama Presidential Center. And he shared this term, earned disrespect. And it's Mm. really stuck with me when you said distrustful of the government. Yes. I think that's another um, aspect that planners or anyone who works in the built environment needs to be extremely mindful of earned disrespect. Bureaucracy can be very guilty of it. Uh, Well-intentioned organizations can be guilty of it and certainly Mm -hmm. individuals. But I'm wondering if you have a a reaction to that. Earned disrespect is, I think, a great way to sum up um, just how tired our communities are, especially the one that I grew up in, of people cheating them out of the basic the the basic rights that they were that they were promised right at the beginning of this nation when they weren't considered citizens specifically talking about african-americans but even now as we grow to a predominantly people of color nation and the things that we've been promised as a nation that our forefathers um of the united states set out to have even if that was just for white men at the time that we're not giving our citizens through government access, right? Basic basic needs like shelter, um, basic needs like fresh water, basic needs that I believe 
you know, we have the power to facilitate and to help all citizens obtain. And for me, planning is a way to even that playing field because planning was the way that the playing field became uneven. Um, the planning of our cities, where you put certain uh, freeways and highways, depending on um, where there are people of color, there are not, right? Redlining clearly is, is uh, a, a marketer, especially, I would say, in the Midwest, because as I move west to Los Angeles, of course, there's redlining there. And, and the way communities are constructed are differently, but the white-black divide is so stark in the Midwest. Whenever I come back from the West Coast, I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot that this is how it is here, you know. White people look at you a little, they linger a little bit longer when they look at you. <laughs> and it's a it's an interesting experience to go from one, one um, dynamic of living to another. Um, one place that's a little bit more diverse than another. Um, and the earned disrespect of government and how we need to do better. And I think we have well-intentioned people, um, especially in the planning profession. I think there are definitely well-intentioned people, but those actions have to match your intentions. And so if you continue to rest on the same actions as our forefathers and stick with the status quo, you will never earn the respect of our citizens, and nor should you. Yes, that's something I've been working on. I I think in my youth, I thought, well, I'm a, a good white person, you know, <laughs> I don't say certain words or I don't have certain beliefs and it's it's not enough. It's not enough as um, a fellow citizen and it's not enough, especially as a planner, someone who mm -hmm. has a special responsibility for, you know, the communities we create. Yes. So I'm wondering, um, you now work for the city of Los Angeles. I do. And you've been in California. Seven years almost seven years, since 2012. So I'm wondering what you've seen there, either personally or professionally, mm -hmm. that um, folks might want to hear about. Well, you know, I'm so thankful for the fact that I learned planning in Los Angeles. And we have millions of people. We're the second largest city in the nation. Largest planning department in the nation. We have 388 employees, um, as my director, Vince Patoni, loves to boast about. <laughs> um, and our city is truly diverse. And I know that diverse, you know, is kind of like a watered down term. But when you go to Los Angeles, literally, you have these ethnic enclaves. You have these different topographies. You have different from the valley where there's horses and farming and and then you go, you know, to the west and you have the coastal and you have the ocean and you're dealing with planning issues about water, you know, seawater level rise. And then you go south and you're dealing with the um, aftermath of the 1992 uprising, still vacant lots. And so you have all of these different issues in one city, like one city, 15 council members, millions of people. And you're the department tasked with making all of that make sense <laughs> and getting those resources equitably to the places that need them, um, which I find to be really, really exciting in Los Angeles. And then we also have a lot of heavy environmental regulations, um, which is a gift and a curse. And if you've ever been a planner in California, you know exactly what I'm talking about with CEQA. Um, so it's been really exciting to be able to deal with these different issues because every community is like a mini city. Our council members represent a population that is a, one of, could be a major city. Um, so that's been super interesting, and again, with the dynamic of just how the West Coast is. And I think also, you know, L.A. is seen as, to some, seen as like this progressive po promised land that's doing everything right. Look at us. Look at our California laws. We're just so great. We're above the curve. And in a lot of ways, I'm grateful that California is, uh, you know, ahead of the curve in some ways, but still has the same racial 
dynamic, still has the same um, ethnic divides that any other place in the country does. I mean, it's hidden well, but underneath it all, they still have the same fundamental issues of equity that any other place in the nation does. And so I think it's also been interesting to kind of dissect that and even bring my colleagues up to speed about how, no, we still have these problems. Let me show you how it's manifested itself just differently than what you're used to. Just, I mean, racism doesn't just exist in the South, like we, like liberals like to make it seem. <laughs> I mean, I speak for myself as, you know, somebody who considers themselves a liberal or progressive. Um, it's everywhere. And I think it's everywhere. It's systematic. And even in the West Coast, even, you know, in our prison systems, everywhere. That is something that needs to change everywhere. And once we combat that and admit that, that's when the real work can begin. I've been recommending to almost everyone I meet, but in particular planning colleagues, uh, mm-hmm. The Color of Law, The New oh, Jim yes. Crow. Yes, yes, yes. Seems like there's a lot of stuff out there that I hope people not only read, but really take to heart and think mm-hmm. about planning in a different way or, mm-hmm. or being in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really important for professionals, for planning people who consider themselves planning professionals. I'm using quotation marks because I believe everybody's a planning professional because literally if you meet a community organizer, they probably don't consider themselves a planner, but if, if they're organizing people around a land use issue, whether it be vacant lots or it be the oversaturation of liquor stores in their community or um, traffic decks. We were just talking about Vision Zero earlier. You're contributing and organizing around planning. You're contributing to changing the built environment of your community for better outcomes and opportunities for the people that live there. You are a planner. I am just a translator. As a professional planner, and I, I, I say this a lot, um, another reason why I'm so thankful that I learned planning in Los Angeles because it was the most humbling experience I could ever have. Um, being from Detroit, going into, I live in South LA and have for the last seven years. I call it Detroit with palm trees. That's like my name for it. Um, but South LA, although similar to how I grew up, like having the same problems and then also having a very resilient people, it's humbling because I did not grow up there. I have to listen. You have to listen. It was it was an exercise in being forced to shut up and absorb what the community is telling you. When I go to community meetings in the Valley, I don't know anything about the Valley. You have to tell me about your horses. You know, when I go to the West Side, I don't know anything about, you know, how your experience with your house and your sea level rise. You have to tell me about that experience. And all I can do is translate that and say, okay, based on what you're giving me, this is how I, these are the city services that we have that can help you with that. Or these are the types of policies we can create that can help you with that. And I think that if more planners consider themselves more like translators than experts we that would uh, save a lot of that would save us a lot of trouble in the community when and just like you were saying earn disrespect where we go into these communities say we have this nice plan with a bow on it you can read it and you can tell us what you think about it but we've already made up our minds that's the things that need to stop those are those are things that's going to continue to get city suit i mean even if you're thinking just a bureaucratic level. I'm a bureaucrat and I care about the, you know, the bureaucracy of it all. Those are things that are going to get your, your ordinances contested. Those are things that are going to get your city sued. Those are things that are going to give you bad press at the baseline level. If you're just talking to somebody who just cares about bureaucracy. So what can we do to mitigate that or to stop it or to make a case for ourselves and say, as planners, we've done the due diligence to make sure that we are 
as I think we should be, which is planner as advocate. And I think, you know, some people, some of my colleagues don't believe that advocate, planner as advocate fits in the bureaucracy model. And I totally think it does, because what a better place to be in than in the government advocating for people and understanding what advocacy really looks like and what equity really looks like and how you can instill that in every policy that you make. So there's a movement or convening called the Untokening. They just had their Mm. annual event in Detroit. They move it around. I think it's the second or third annual. And from that group, I learned the idea, sort of a matrix of inside, outside, burn, build. Mm, And so what you'd be describing, uh, an advocate working in the government would be inside, build. Okay. Um, And then someone who is, let's say, like a fierce advocate, outside of the city might be like outside burn but i love okay. that framework for understanding yes. different people's roles oh, yeah. in affecting change oh yeah and i've really held on to it um i don't mind making fun of myself i was doing some work on the west side of chicago mm-hmm. and we had a community meeting on a saturday morning and i was a little bit early so I was driving around. I don't think our country has enough street food. I want something mm. fast. Come to L.A. We got lots of street food. Right. <laughs> You're right. It is. Yeah. Chicago has a, way, a ways to go on that one. Um, so I just wanted something quick to get yes. me through the day. And uh, the west side of Chicago borders Oak Park. And Oak Park mm-hmm. had its super cute farmer's market going on that mm-hmm. day. But couldn't find a place to park, so um, went on to my meeting and was discussing this with a colleague who lives on the west side. He's like, oh, yeah, my neighborhood has a farmer's market, too. It's really nice. They got a security guard and everything. Mm. And it was a very humbling moment, as you described, of lived experience, you mm. know, and, and you all you can do to get beyond your lived experience is listen and yes. make yourself open and humble yourself, because mm-hmm. um, obviously... I've never described a farmer's market experience with it's got nice security yeah. as a top attribute. Yeah. So I've really taken that to heart. Um, you know, where you hold meetings, how you get the word out. Mm-hmm. The one I'm challenging myself to do better on is even sometimes uh, responding to an RFP for a grant. Mm-hmm. Don't go ask for a grant unless you've talked to the community, right? Some, yes. A lot of planners would be like, well, we're bringing this grant money. It's like, well, did you talk to anyone? How do you know that this is what they want or this is what they truly need, right? And I think I, I heard this anecdotal story when I was in planning school about um, they were trying, I think it was in South LA, and they were trying to understand why people weren't coming to this specific meeting about something that they were like, oh, the community should come out in droves for this. And... Um, one of the, and so they were asking some people like why why is nobody coming to these meetings and they were, and this person was like well there's stray dogs all in our neighborhood and so for me to get from where I live to where you live I have to walk past these stray dogs and I'm just not interested like I don't want to get bit I don't but it's something that you wouldn't even think about it's like oh like it's it's not necessarily the time it's not necessarily the place but there's this outside factor that I would have never thought about like these stray dogs that you're worried about or it could be just like I mean if we're being realistic gang lines of like oh I can't cross that street I can't come into that neighborhood it's really cute that you're having a outreach event there but I don't feel welcome there or even if you're on the west side of Los Angeles oh I can't go to your meeting because you know this particular person is always yelling and I don't feel like getting into an argument with them because I don't agree with them I'm just not going to participate in the civic engagement process at all and so like understanding the dynamics community by community is really really important before you go into anybody's backyard and say 
even asking any types of questions about regulations, you have to actually be embedded in the community and understand what their needs are. And so, like, yeah, like just humbling yourself and asking very simple questions of what they actually need and what they actually want. The other thing I think planners might benefit from is if you do have low turnout, uh, it's okay if you mm-hmm. learn from it. So yes. um, what you can't do is wipe your hands and say, well, we flyered mm-hmm. the neighborhood. Uh, that's on them. <laughs> that's not enough. You really yeah. have to stop, uh, be honest, and learn from it and do better. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And what I'm finding now that's really exciting at the city of Los Angeles is that our director has started a performance management unit. And so now I'm in the performance management unit um, where we uh, look at the metrics for our department, metrics concerning cases, how fast are we getting out cases, are we meeting our deadlines. Um, we, we run a lot of reports, uh, especially since we have such a housing crisis in Los Angeles right now. We're running our reports, getting the data, like how are our housing numbers doing from the mayor's directive, constantly creating reports. And then I'm in charge of the training program. Again, we have the large planning department, 388 people. How can we be more efficient in training our employees, especially when you have that many, when you have a city that is geographically different in so many different areas how can you most efficiently take what you know about where you may be lacking in the numbers or in the metrics and then train your staff up on those things so that again you're becoming more efficient if you're just a bureaucrat just for the sake of being bureaucrat that's going to be even more motivating for you is instilling in your staff that you want them to be the best professional that they can be You want them to participate in APA events. You want them to be AICP if they choose to. You want them to be out in the community and acting as an ambassador in the community because that's essentially going to help their work be better. And it's going to essentially help um, communities get to know the planners that are working in their communities. And those are types of things that I don't think planning departments invest enough in. Like we do the day-to-day zoning work and all that. And that's cute and fine. And and that works for, for a while. But if you really want to change the landscape of planning, and I'm a big thinker because I think I can take on the world. <laughs> um, you have to start with instilling your employees to let them know that they're doing something important, whether they're it's perceived as pushing papers or not. They're changing the landscape of that city, project by project, and they have a big role in making sure that those guidelines are being implemented, that the zoning code being implemented. If they see holes or gaps in that, they should also feel empowered to go to the powers that be to say, you know, this or I understand that this ordinance was important when it was enacted 25 years ago, but this is how it's slowing down mom and pop shops today. This is how it's inhibiting good design in South LA today. Like those are things that you should be empowering your employees to do and to understand. And so like, it's super important for any planning department to kind of have that, um, kind of have that air, whether you have resources or not is one thing you can always work without them, but it's, it's about that camaraderie and that inspiration, I think, to make people feel like they want to wake up and go to work <laughs> every day and, and shape their cities and make more opportunities for people. I also want to encourage many more planners to get up and get out from behind their desk. Yes, 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 yes. Luckily in L.A., I mean, we have this professional development day called Planning Day, and we take about 300 of our employees out into the field. Um, it's a big effort. I was coordinating it this year. Um, we have a, a group of about 50 people coordinating seven tours in one geographic area. And so we change the geographic area every year. And that's like our way to get employees out into the field and to be learning about these different places. This year we did Wilshire and Westlake, which are two communities in um, 
LA and it's you know every year the planners just rave about it because they get to get out again our city's so big you could be a planner in the valley and know nothing about East LA right and so this is our way of at least one time of year getting our staff out there so that they can actually see what's in the community and um I also think metrics is important when it comes to outreach, as you were speaking to before, where it's like, oh, I had a meeting, nobody came, great. You know, but if you had the metrics of like, well, who did we flyer? How many people came out? What were the zip codes of the people who came out? Because a lot of times we get the same people from the same area coming to all the meetings. What were the demographics of those people? And even looking at our social media analytics and things like that, you can kind of get, paint a picture of the people who consistently come out to your meetings. And if more departments kind of gather information like that and kind of used it to their advantage of saying like, okay, well, at this meeting, we got a lot of people from this zip code and we know we're missing a lot of people from this zip code. Let's focus our efforts on this zip code now, you know, and all it takes is a basic sign-in sheet with some basic information and for somebody to put in a spreadsheet and run an analysis on it, which is a lot easier (laughs) than, than people try to make it sound, but there's ways to hold ourselves accountable as planners. Again, without saying like, oh, we've tried our best, we're gonna step away from it. Like, no, no, no. Are you getting at least the base level representation of your city's demographics at your meetings? If it's a no, you're not doing it right. And there's always things that you can think outside the box. And this is why diversity and planning is important because you need innovative ideas. You need people who are going to come through and, you know, blow the lid off the box and say, well, have you thought about doing it like this? Um, A lot of people, I had one director whose name shall not be mentioned when I worked at a smaller city, say that he almost threw my resume out because I had an African-American studies and women's studies degree as an undergrad. And he gave me a chance for whatever, because I have a whole master's degree. Um, And it's so funny that he said that because, you know, most people come to planning with like architecture background, urban studies background. And I came from this, you know, kind of non-traditional, you know, way of moving into planning. And, but I think that that gives me the most advantage because I think about structural movements. I think about structural racism. I think about how there are these systems in place that keep people from interacting with the system that we're trying to plug them into. Yeah, you can come to a public hearing, but if the public hearing's in the middle of the day on a Tuesday and I'm at work, that's why you're not getting people to participate in your process that you've been going through for the last 100 and whatever years. Like you need people who are going to bring diverse thoughts into the process and blow it up, you should always be open to somebody coming up with a better idea than you had, because that's how we actually change communities. So I know engagement is a passion of yours. How did you know? (laughs) (laughs) Wonder if you have some recent projects you want to share that you've been working on. Yeah, you know, while I was at USC, I um, hated it. I hated USC a lot. And I still, you know, that student loan bill doesn't help. And I was just a fish out of water. You know, I came from this predominantly black city, being Detroit, University of Michigan, which is, you know, go blue, of course. And I came into this environment where I was like, oh, this school is in South Central. Like, you know, this is gonna be so cool. You know, we're gonna be in the community. I'm gonna learn planning. I'm gonna be doing all these amazing things in the community. And then you go to USC, it's literally beautiful campus, walls everywhere, keeping the community out. The architecture's not inviting. It's, you know, like I say all these things on the record and, you know, everybody I went to USC knows. I have some really great professors, though. Shout out to Dr. (laughs) Uh, David Sloan and Lisa Schweitzer. And so I was really unhappy. I was so unhappy I wanted to go home. And then I went to my classes, not very diverse at all, not very diverse in thought. 
and they would be saying things and I'd be like, you know, that's not how the world works. Like I was always that person in the class, like, you know, that's not how I understand that you have this idea of how planning should happen. But if, if you're actually on the ground in the community, that's not how it works. And so I was just so tired of it. And um, I always liked to work with youth when I was in college. So I went to the administration one day and, you know, I got big in my britches and I was like, you all don't do enough for South L.A. You all don't do enough for the community, period. We need to bring students on this campus and teach them about planning. And then I held my breath. (laughs) And uh, Julie Kim, love her to death. She was the program administrator at the time. And she says, okay, we'll pay for it. Just create it. That's the one thing I like about USC. They charge a lot, but at least they have money. So then I was like, oh, shoot, I'm actually going to have to produce this program that I made up in my head. And so I went back to the drawing board. And at the time, I was a part of our student, our planning student organization, you know, through the Price School. And I started planning for college, which planning for college is the name of the program. Um, and so I was working with this grant called Gear Up um, with this school called JFK, which is in Koreatown, which is not too far from South L.A. And so I, I went to, you know, I went to the grant and I was like, you guys do pre-college education programming. I have opportunities for you to bring 100 of your students to USC's campus to teach them about planning. Because when you think about it, if we want my more diverse planners, it doesn't start where it started with me in junior year of college. It starts in elementary school. It starts in middle school. It starts when people are saying, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a ballerina. Like it starts at that age. But nobody's saying, I want to be an urban planner so bad when I grow up. It's just not something you even understand exists. And honestly, it's for a reason, because planners have a lot of power. If you think about structural racism, of course, they wouldn't want you to be a planner. So started this program, 100 students, got some other students together, created lesson plans, created the day. It was like a field trip. So it was two different field trips, 50 students each on each Friday. And it was amazing. It was life changing for me because something that I've always is a character trait is that I like, I complain, but then I'm also like, okay, what am I going to do about it? And for me, that was like, okay, I hate USC. What am I going to do about it? (laughs) And um, the program still exists today. Um, Even when I'm not there, I graduated in 2014. It won won a planning award for excellence and outreach in 2013. And then it won a national award in 2016 from APA. Um, And so again, I'm really blessed um, and excited that that program still lingers today. And I think for Los Angeles, that program helped to propel other programs and have other people be interested, more interested in youth outreach in Los Angeles. And so from there, I was, that's when I was recruited to the city of LA to be an intern because they wanted a youth program. And so I started a youth program for them and that won an APA award in 2015. So um, I know saying that out loud does not sound humble at all. (laughs) It just is. You should say it. But um, two great programs. But like those are the types of things where I'm like, okay, how can we get more kids, more, not even kids, because youth, they're first of all, they're much more fun to work with than adults. Let's be real. They're not jaded by life. They're not jaded by bills. They're not jaded by you know, having to drive to work. They're literally interacting with the built environment. and But they also have a lot of life experiences, whether you be, again, scared of gangs. You know, your mother works four or five jobs. You have to you have to work or you have to uh, walk your, your little brother or sister to school. So this is how you're navigating the built environment. This is how you use public transit. Like, all that information is really important. And then not only that, planners, we make plans for, like, 20 years in the future. 
I mean, of course, asking the people that, you know, who are of age is important, but really our plans affect the generation that is going to use that plan in 20 years, like the built environment that's going to exist in 20 years. So what a better group of people to actually engage in our planning processes. And I think for so long we have not um, been deliberate, at least in, in including them in the conversation. And so that has really been exciting for me in Los Angeles. I actually also helped another city, the city of Huntington Park. They were doing their general plan update, which is a y'all call them comprehensive plans. And we did a two-month youth camp with them. And they actually got to present their youth districts to the city council and their city manager. And that was really, really exciting. And that was an awesome program as well. So I've been able to kind of implement different things across Los Angeles. And I see how it's it's changed the landscape and changed the conversation. That's all I could ask for. Very inspiring. So you have been actively involved with APA. I'm wondering why. Um, The reason I got involved in APA is because when I was a first year at USC, um, the California Planning Foundation, which is the like philanthropy arm of the California chapter, um, they have a student scholarship that they give every year. And I was the first place winner in 2013. I'm very thankful for that money. Thank you very much. (laughs) And so from there, they actually appoint the top um, student to the APA California board. So I was the um, young, the student representative on the California board for a year or two years. I can't remember. Um, and so that's kind of how I got involved. And then from there, I saw how important it was. One, APA is, is super important to our profession. Whether you like it or not, APA pushes the needle on the trends in our profession. So if you want to change anything in our profession, it's going to ultimately have to go through APA. And I recognize that. Um, And again, for me, whenever I want to complain about something, I complain about it. And then I'm like, how can I change it? (laughs) So, um, you know, being on the state board and seeing like, okay, well, what do young planners need? What do students need? I was able to start this. We don't call it an ambassador program anymore because APA has an ambassador program. But basically, it's a program. We have a large state conference every year. And it was hard for our students to not only pay to go, but also pay for just room and board. So what we did is we started this kind of, I guess it was a room sharing program where we had other young planners in the host location offer if they had space, if somebody crashed on their couch, extra room, what have you, um, to have other young planners be able to afford at least, you know, not to have to pay for room. And then we also, um, there was no young planner events at the conferences at all when I started to go. My first year in Valsalia, California, which is really fun. Um, And so I started the trend of having specific young planner group sessions and also events at the conferences, which still goes on today, even though I I no longer oversee it, that trend still exists. So I'm really excited for that. Um, And for me, I just felt like at the local section in Los Angeles, again, we think we're so progressive and we have this young, um, progressive you know, chapter in Los Angeles. Um, but I still felt like the equity wasn't there or there were so many planners of color that just were not participating in our programming at all. And so I would literally ask my friends like, Hey, Hey, like, can you come to this program? And when I was the co-director of the young planners group for Los Angeles, specifically, we started to have events in South LA and in East LA. And that's where all the, I would see planners of color that I had never seen before. And I was so excited. I'm like, wait, why, why don't you come? You're like, oh, this wasn't for me, but I saw y'all were having an event here. The topic was about displacement or gentrification or 
development and I thought it was interesting. So I came out. And so um, seeing that I knew again, I was like, okay, we're, we're on the verge of something like something needs to change because clearly the planners of color are there. We're just not attracting them as APA. Like what is, what, why should you pay for our membership? Why should you interact with us? And we need you because we need the diversity. Um, I, I mean, on the state board for many, many years, I've been the only African-American period, period in the room at all. Now, I also have to keep reintroducing my, reintroducing myself to, to the colleagues on the board. Um, but I'm like, I'm the only black person here. You don't remember my name. But I say that all in just that there is room for improvement. I recognize that and I want to be part of the change. So, um, again, I did that stuff at the state level, at the local level. I helped to change our bylaws to include diversity and inclusion informa- uh, language throughout the document, not just we have a, di- a designated diversity and inclusion officer. Um, and when you when I did control find diversity, it was only in their section. And I was like, wait, 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 this isn't right. This needs to be in the director section. This needs to be in the board responsibilities. This needs to be in the objectives. This needs to be in the mission. This needs to be everywhere. Because again, it's cute to talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity, but when you really have to do the work, people are like hands off. They're like, well, we said it, didn't we write it somewhere? <laughs> um, and so all, that was a hard one victory too, because there was, there was a bit of resistance to those changes, but I think we were able to, again, me advocating for that, which is exhausting which is exhausting, but something that I felt was really, really important. And then we were also able to, I was also able to advocate that we get a diversity and inclusion consultant to come do a workshop with our board. And so those were the two major things um, that I helped our board accomplish. And then I stepped down from that role because again, it was exhausting. And it's okay to admit for all the planners out there that are doing this work and that are feeling a little weary, take a step back, take a step back because I always say being a black woman is exhausting enough <laughs> Just being in my body, seeing the news every day, seeing black bodies being being slaughtered on the ground, seeing immigrant children in cages. That is exhausting in itself. And so there's only so much you can do, but everybody plays their part and everybody plays their part when they can. And so for me, I decided to take a step back after I made those major changes um, for my own sanity, but also just to explore other things that I was passionate about. Um, and so for me, APA is important because, it, again, if you want to change the dynamic of our profession, APA is where it has to happen. And I think that a lot of the policies, especially on the national level, are heading that way. And I'm really proud and excited to be a part of that. And we need to be in our local sections doing that same work and pushing them the same way. It takes time. It takes time. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's very many uncomfortable conversations. <laughs> On the other hand, sometimes I love uh, thinking in terms of hashtags. I want to start one that's five extra minutes because mm-hmm. I think a lot of planners, if they would just spend five extra minutes thinking about who they're putting on their panel, mm. what they're writing in their bylaws. I'm snapping. Where they're, <laughs> where they're having their meeting. Yes. It's not that hard. Yes. I mean, there's is some stuff that's really hard, and then there's stuff that's not that hard. Yeah, yeah. You is gotta, your panel di- – I remember we got into this big – not I won't say – I won't call it an argument, but we got into this conversation because we had a signature event, and I felt like the panel was homogenous. I mean, and I understand how structural things work. If, if you – are of a certain, like, I know a lot of black people. 
you might not know a lot of black people <laughs> if you, where you're from. You know, Detroit is very segregated. I get it. You know, if you're if you're in that dynamic, ask for help. Hey, we really like some diverse people to talk about this subject. I've exhausted my personal um, network. Do you mm-hmm. have anybody that you can have in mind? It's just that simple to, again, think outside the box, ask for help and admit when you've fallen short of your resources. It is okay to admit that you don't know the answer as the person with privilege. And that's any person with privilege. Like whether, you know, I'm a cis heterosexual woman. I fall short when it comes to things with the LGBT community, trans women, trans men. I'm going to ask for help. And it doesn't mean that you're tokenizing or admitting that you're stupid or anything, but you've you've exhausted your resources. You can ask somebody if they choose to help you, they will. But usually they are because you've asked for help and you're being earnest in in your request. But I think, again, planners are so proud (laughs) and uh, they don't want to admit that they don't have all the answers. And that's the and that's the first issue. I saw that you were one of Next City's Vanguard Fellows. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Oh, man, that was the best the best urban professional conference I've ever been to because it was so diverse. I had never seen so many people of color who are interested in urban issues and they weren't all planners or traditional planners. I met a woman who was like, she was a Harvard fellow. She got paid to write about her experience traveling as a black woman. Another man, he worked for NASA. He was like a space science engineering. He was into historic preservation. Um, there was all these different people, but we all cared about the same things. And we all saw that equity, diversity, inclusion wasn't a one-off thing. Like it's not, oh, let me go to this diversity and inclusion, um, session. It was built into everything. Every session talked about it. Every discussion was evolved around it. Every discussion talked about, okay, what can we do better? Where are we, where are we falling short? And that was to me the best conference I could have ever attended. It was like, For me, especially since that was the time that I was, you know, on the Los Angeles board and I felt like I can only explain it as I was holding my breath and I finally exhaled at that conference because it it revived my hope that there are people out there that we can tap into and that really care. They just didn't associate themselves with being planners for some reason, some odd reason. Um, And they didn't see planning or APA as an inclusive space for them. And so that may, again, made me the aha moment of like, okay, how can I make APA feel more inclusive? Because I know that there's, we want to be more inclusive and we want to have more diverse membership and we want to um, have younger leadership rise up the ranks, of course, because that's how our organization sustains itself. There's no other way for our organization to sustain itself. Um, And so, yeah, Next Next City is a wonderful organization. If you're out there, you know, you should definitely apply for it. They pick the top 40, under 40 urban professionals every year. Um, They pick a new city every year. We actually were matched up with a local organization and we got to do this. It's called the Big Idea Challenge. So you go in and you pair it up with the local community um, that has a planning problem. And you you basically uh, do the work for them trying to figure out, okay, what can they do to get around this issue for us? It was a charter school that didn't have any green space. They didn't have a field or anything. But they were across the street from this vacant field, but it was owned by Public Works. Um, and so trying to understand working with their council member, how can they utilize the space or somehow do a lease with the city 
in order to utilize the space so that they can have a soccer field or whatever. And they were across the street from a freeway too. So they had some um, green space under the freeway that also was available for use. And so we, we came up with a plan of how they may be able to use one space or the other space or both spaces in conjunction for the types of sports that they had at that school. Um, ultimately, our, our thing did not win, but the winning team gets $10,000 to implement their plan. Um, which is also really exciting about about Next City and the things that they're doing. And I mean, I, I suggest anybody, you know, sign up for the nextcity.org like mailing list because they're always sending articles, very interesting articles that again, they're grounded in equity. So I like to ask all of my guests a pair of questions. Yes. The pair of questions is, what is the field of planning getting right? What inspires you oh, yes. about what's okay. going on now? And the flip side is I want to hear where you think there's room for improvement. Hmm. I think what the field of planning gets right is that it attracts people who want to make change. Um, I thought it was the money. <laughs> I mean, depending on where you're planning <laughs> you, or if you're in the private sector versus the public sector, <laughs> you're like, no. I had a friend, she twice left the private sector for the not-for-profit sector uh-huh. and got paid more money. So oh, I'm just really? telling the students out there, uh, do your homework. That's true. I mean, because if you work for a government that's large enough, you can, you're going to get a pretty good salary and good benefits, which is good. Um, but, do, but do what you want to do. Do what you're passionate about. Don't do it. Well, think about retirement. Um, I think, again, we attract people who want to make change. They might not know how to. Or they might not know the vehicle for it, but they want to change something. They want to change their built environment for the betterment of whether it be specific neighborhood or a specific type of person. They want to change it. I think what also our profession gets right is that we do at times ask the hard questions. And, you know, planner as advocate is not a new it's not a new term. It's not a, a new thing. This is something that has been fundamentally part of our practice for a long time, but I don't think that our profession always remembers it. And I think we're coming up on a a resurgence of remembering what we're here to do and why we're here to do it. Um, And that's why I think APA is such a good um, messenger for that, especially with AICP. Let me just plug AICP right quick because I from I know a lot of people are like oh why do I have to pay so much money I have to take a test and it is not easy believe me but I think having like the ethics principles having a tie to constant professional development like I have to get these AIC pre-credits it forces you to go to a conference it forces you to be up at least attempt to be up on what the profession is changing into and I think that that's really important and I also think when you're in a room full of engineers and architects all day it lets you hold your ground like I know you don't you know you may not respect what I do but what I do really drives everything that you're trying to accomplish Um, because building a building is one thing and how it looks is another thing how that building will be used now and in 20 years is something that you're not able to think about Um, and that's where we come in and we're able to facilitate that because space is fluid and it and it's constantly moving and um that's why we're so important in this hodgepodge of the built environment it's not just as simple as building a building and making it look nice well i was reminded um by remarks at a state conference that working in the public interest that's literally Mm -hmm. in our code of ethics Mm -hmm. and that's not true for other professions it's not yeah and that's something to to hold on to. Exactly, exactly. And I think that we, 
again, hold the authority because in a lot of cities, of course, planning departments or planners are charged with maintaining a zoning code. Even if you're if you're not required to have a general plan, I mean, well, California requires a general plans by law, but if you're in a state that doesn't, you're still required to think about the future. What, who, where are people going to live at this at its simplest form? Where are people going to get their water from? Where are people, you know, you're charged with facilitating all of that, which is really, really important. Um, so I think that that's what we get right. And I think we're room for improvement. Again, it's just having a profession that is um, predominantly white. And I think we're closer to 50-50 female, male um, than we were in the past. But being humble enough to ask for help and admit where we've fallen short. And, you know, if you have privilege and you have the ability to mentor, I think that is so important. For me, the reason that I'm in this chair or the reason why I'm in the position I'm in or the reason that I've been able to access the the spaces that I would not have um, is because of mentors, because people met me um, and for whatever reason, my sparkling personality <laughs> register for them, but they were they were like, you know what, I'm going to take you under my wing. I'm going to introduce you to my network so that your network expands. And I would be remiss if I didn't admit that, right? I mean, Nina's always gonna Nina. <laughs> but it's because those doors have been opened for me that I'm able to sit at that table and have a conversation with somebody and show them a perspective that they wouldn't have. And I'll, I'll shout out my director, Vince Bertoni, because he's one of those people who has made a lane for me to feel comfortable enough to express how I feel about the dynamics at work. Or I was like, oh, you know, we should start a mentor program or we should, you know, do this that, and the thing. He's like, okay, sure. You know, let's do a training program. Nina, I think you'd be great for this. Let's start thinking about this. And I think if more people with privilege kind of open those doors for people of color or, or just diverse, whether, you know, people with disabilities, how many people with disabilities are in the planning profession? Could we open doors for them? How many gender nonconforming people are in the, are in the planning for, planning profession could we open doors for them and so like as a person with privilege or as a person who has connections mentoring which is also in our code of ethics um is such an important part of how we make sure that the profession continues to grow and grow in the right direction and incorporates a whole bunch of different ideas I think sometimes mentoring sounds scary to otherwise busy people. So I think of it in terms of capital M mentoring and and lowercase mentoring. And what I mean by that is just inviting a younger colleague to an event Mm -hmm. or forwarding, you know, an organization or an event that you think someone might benefit from. And we could hashtag five five extra minutes (laughs) on that one, right? (laughs) All right. In closing, I'm wondering if there's anything you're reading, anything... um, folks should check out or know about? Well, I mean, I am reading Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, and I feel like, oh my God, and she's narrating the book because of course I'm doing the audiobook Judge Someone Else because I don't have time to actually read the book. But um, it is so, so good. And I think especially since we're in Chicago, we're at APA headquarters, her story of being a Chicagoan her whole life has really enlightened me. Um, as far as, again, forced to listen. And I, and it's funny because um, eventually I want to move back to the Midwest, right? I've been out in California for seven years. I'm, I'm a Detroit girl. Chicago's a great large city. I would love to work here one day. Um, and so I've been like listening to a lot of podcasts. There's a podcast called The City. 
I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's basically about um, the dumps in Lawndale. Um, and so I've learned a lot of, about Chicago and, and that podcast, again, Becoming by Michelle Obama, has been really insightful into how she grew up in Chicago. Um, another good resource that I've been using to learn more about Chicago is this show on stars called America to Me. Great show. It's a docuseries that has 10 episodes and it's about Oak Park High School. Um, which is borderline on the west side of Chicago, Oak right? Oak Park River Forest. Oh, Oak Park River Forest. My bad. Sorry. <laughs> and um, I've been just learning a lot about, again, some of the same problems that we see all around the country with schools, the achievement gap between um, black and white students, and the resources. It's a great, great 10-part docuseries. I definitely suggest you watch it. You can always get uh, one of those free subscriptions for a week and binge watch it, because I think all the episodes are, are done, but you, I, I would definitely definitely suggest if you want to learn more about Chicago and public schools and the things that are going on here, America to me on stars. Well, it's another example of where progressive folks think, think they've got it figured out. And I think what the series demonstrated is not yet. Not yet. Even with a black principal, it's been very, it started a lot of good conversations. And I, and I think it's something, it's something worth watching for sure. Well, thank you so much for your candor, sharing your insights and experience with us. With us, I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. I had a great time. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.